Hey Legionaries, this is General Lance joined to you in the war room with a very special colleague and guest of mine, Uber Boyo. Welcome, sir. How are you doing, my man? Thank you very much for having me on, and this is definitely going to be a juicy one. Oh, it's always juicy. Well, me and Sergeant Barnes here, we're just here kicking it back at the uh, command post, and uh, we're just talking about the ancient Roman Empire, and uh, we talk about leadership. We go back and forth and talk about how, you know, he tells me that anything before 1912 has no relevance to today. But obviously, I think that's uh, very far-fetched, far from the truth. And it has to do with a lot of uh, how men carried themselves and, you know, Machiavellian virtu and all that kind of stuff. I know that you're yeah. very well versed in uh, both these concepts. It's very much a Nietzsche appreciator, right? Oh, 100%. This would be a Nietzsche, Nietzsche fan account over here. So this is what you're getting with Steph. And um, yeah, we could definitely go into that stuff at Lent. Magnificent. And th the funny thing is, uh, in the uh, Second World War, there was actually a curated edition of Nietzsche given to uh, Wehrmacht soldiers at the front. Uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but it's actually very well, much a martial you know, philosophy. Oh, yeah. Um, you say curated. So I know they gave them, as those spoke Zarathustra in, um, in the First World War in the trenches. Did they, what do you mean by curated? Like, would they sort of edit out parts of it or they'd kind of give them the parts that are most relevant to fighting? Uh, so there was, so the First World War was thus spoke Zarathustra. But as time went on, uh, they kind of, I guess, Nietzsche grew in, in um, popularity and they took will to power that had been published by Nietzsche's sister, obviously. Um, and then they kind of cut out parts of Beyond Good and Evil and, and things that kind oh, wow. of kind of brought a crescendo and, and like, you know, manly spirit uh, to a soldier that might be, uh, you know, under duress. You know, you can imagine fro freezing in the Eastern Front or in the desert in Libya, and you're just reading something to pick yourself up after having been awake for 48 hours and fighting to, you know. Yeah. You know, so... Yeah. I, I definitely think it's one of those most interesting things because here in the West, especially in the United States, uh, it used to be that we were given free Bibles, free, uh, yeah. you know, Christian Bibles. And I, I wanted to ask you, because I know you're very much a scholar about this, just give us a rundown as far as the preliminary critique Nietzsche had about not just Christianity, because I feel like that's unfair, but Platonism in general. Yeah, like I've... It's done this an awful lot with people, and um, there's a, there's one issue with this is that <laughs> Nietzsche's critique is best understood as Nietzsche as a psychologist. You know, so what is Nietzsche doing? What does Nietzsche? Um, what what was Nietzsche's job? You know, he was a philosopher, <laughs> if you want to call it this type of job, and he was in the academy, the academy, and he noticed something very very funny where he would um, see he would meet all these these academics these philosophers and he would sort of see that these people are sitting around and coming up with these big schemas about the world they're developing these big abstract theory cell copes as, as they would say on the internet these days so we come up with these big mad schemas and you'd have people like Kant or Hegel trying to create these world systems and stuff like this and Nietzsche would look at this and him being a philosopher naturally he'd be like drawn into this but he was different he sort of looked at this and he found this off-putting and the way that you could understand this is like like imagine a, a nerd in high school sitting there and, and talking to like, you know, a handsome action taking jock, like a man of action and saying to talk to him about like, you know, world theories and all these like all this nonsense going on. This Dexter point Dexter shit going on inside of his head. And the jock sort of like, bro, let's go out and play sports and let's go. You know, imagine a, a nerd sitting down and talking to a jock about morality. And then the jock sort of looking at him and not being able to explain this because he's more of a, he's not really maybe a word orientated man. But he looks at the, the nerd and says, listen, bro, you have no 
virtue or morality inside of you. Virtue is going out and being brave on the football pitch. Virtue is going out there and fighting with the boys. Like my virtue, my loyalty, my, 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 the things that I care about, the virtues, the morality that I have is not, and never explained. It's obvious. You know, I, I represent it when I go out in the field and hang out with the guys and, and, and do things that are, that are, um, that are brave and whatnot. And so you look at the nerd and the nerd having this theory about bravery is just so absurd. It's, it's so weird because it's like, bro, you're, you're talking about it, but not representing it. You're, you're literally, you're, you're literally a theory. cell. you know, you're, you're, you're talking about something you do not possess inside your body. Go and achieve it. Another great example of this is the film Saving Private Ryan. Have you ever seen that before where the, you've got the, you've got the, the, the band of brothers. Oh yeah. And then you have this one, the one guy and the one guy is writing a book about a brotherhood and they all sneer and they all laugh at him. And they are being a little bit of a dick to him. And he's obviously not like a bad dude, the guy writing the book. But they're kind of pointing something out to him. It's like, listen, bro, like you're not one of us because you don't have the virtues that make you one of us. And there's no amount of talking about it that's going to make you one of us. Mm -hmm. And the whole story, the whole subplot of that film is that this guy struggles to, to be brave. He can talk about brotherhood. He can talk about war. He can be a journalist. But only at the very end is he able to kill a German soldier. And he finds his bravery at the end, or maybe you could say his killer instinct, whatever it is. And that's the kind of great victory for him is that he actually eventually has to just get over it and, and pull the fucking trigger and, and do the dangerous thing. And, and that's where it all becomes real. And so it's a kind of a, a lot of analogies to go into. But what Nietzsche was doing, he was almost like the enlightened nerd. You know, he was the jock nerd or the nerd of the jocks or something like this. He sees this for what it is and he's the guy who's very articulate and so he can see this theory selling and whatnot and so he becomes a massive critic of ideology of ideologues of moral posturing of people who sit down there and um and and create these types of schemas and try to drill morality down other people's throats and of course it's not uncommon to see people critique the christian church the christian priest christianity as a sort of institution in and of itself it's full of this stuff you know it's not it's not unusual to, to meet people who are like the whole point of you know christ um suffering and death is that there was a load of pharisees who were morally posturing about what the judaic religion was and christ was like like, yo bros this is just fucking nerd shit fuck off and they're like kill him you know that's basically what <laughs> yeah. went down there and and this is the same thing is that nietzsche sees all this he looks at christianity he looks at philosophy he looks at these people who are telling us what it means to be moral which actually what it means to be virtuous which is actually what it means to be a man and he's like these are all fucking dorks why are we listening to these dudes why are we listening to these guys who are uh, escaping into these abstractions with no tangible connection to nature and so his great intuitive flip on natural philosophy was to put that challenge forward and say, well, how would we reevaluate the way that we understand ourselves in alignment with something that was more real? How would we create a philosophy of the jock, I guess, is to put it on very simple terms. No, of course. And, you know, you brought up Saving Private Ryan and it always stuck out to me because I have always been, even before I was in the military, like a huge fan of military. I loved Roman history, etc. And I remember the plot of Saving Private Ryan is basically, it's for the audience that doesn't know, it's predicated on the idea that there's a team assembled to go and get the last surviving member of uh, a member of the, I think it's the 82nd Airborne, uh, who his siblings had died at D-Day and to send him home. But the idea is that they find him at this fixture where there's a bridge, the final bridge over, uh, you know, some a critical point in France, but it's not a big, a big deal. But, during this period, there's this nerd type, this uh, you know desk jockey that gets uh, stuck with uh, you know Tom Hanks, uh, who's <laughs> the uh, the captain there, and basically he convinces the captain and his team to let go of this German POW instead of execute oh. him, and later on that same German POW doing his duty, defending Germany, obviously killed his buddies. And he was too much of a coward to kill him on one-on-one -on -one combat when, uh, you know, later in the, the climax of that, that field. Wow. Yeah. And so, you know, I guess there's a big uh, practical example of how mercy kills you. And also on top yeah. of that, the, the idea of, 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 of leveraging mercy as if it's a good, but it's clearly an evil because he got his buddies killed. And so, um, you know, I guess I wanted to talk to you about that. And I wanted to talk to you about, yeah. you know, like, what is your opinion necessarily about, you know, how Nietzsche felt about mercy and the securitist, uh, I guess, nature of the weak's will to power? 
Well, I'd actually like to comment about that because I think this opens up a, a, far, a very, very important question because anybody who's a soldier is faced with this question of like, all right, decision making. Because again, the, the problem with the nerds, the problem with these theory cells is that they try to generalize and abstract things that can't necessarily be generalized and abstracted. So for example, an, a moral statement about the world sounds beautiful but that does not mean it's accurate to reality or more importantly this idea that there's a moral way of doing things right and wrong as you might say that sounds like the way it should be but that's not what it's actually like in reality when you think about what is morality what what it what does it mean to be moral people don't actually ever really understand what it means to be moral because what is morality trying to help you to do it's trying to help you make decisions and why do we have these laws of Moses or these schemas or the Ten Commandments? Why do we have these? Because they're trying to inform us how to decide what to do. But the problem is, is that decisions are not straightforward. You cannot apply schemas to decisions in the way that you think. In fact, Jesus Christ would often say this. I came here to fulfill the law. You know, I came here to, in some sense, be a representation of the law in action, the living law. In, in that type of idea, he's the fulfillment of the mosaic ideas and not some type of like rigid and walloping and, and, and like stone pinning you up against it or something like this. And so when someone says something like the virtue of mercy, like mercy is clearly useful in certain situations. It's clearly valuable to be merciful. There's clearly times where that decision to be de de to decide to be merciful is useful, is good, is helpful, whatever way you want to frame it. But that doesn't mean it's all. It always is, and that in Saving Private Ryan is a great example of this. It's like, look, that and this dude go is kind of compassionate, yeah, but it's going to come back. You're at war, I'm afraid. Whereas if you meet some fucking poor little dog or something like this, and he has a broken leg, maybe it's valuable for you to pick him up and help his leg and and contribute towards that cycle of nature. Although you have all these interesting questions, like you fix that dog's leg, you might go out and eat a rabbit, and it's like, well, who's who's better? What's what's going on with the? And the point being is that morality is something that happens in action it happens in a specific way it, it more specifically it's a process it's something that you have to deal with every single day you have to make new decisions you have to figure out schemas you have to figure out habits you have to understand reality and engage with reality and Nietzsche was very very heavy on this is flipping us away from these ideas of these like frigid abstract moral ideas that we can stand around and say beautiful things and that counts as making the right decisions and instead trying to get us to flip our thinking towards you know all right what is the what is the right decision to make in, in the moment? Meaning what is the goal and understanding our, our instincts and understanding the value of something like having instincts and why they're trying to help us towards our goal and success. The, the Saving Private Ryan example would be the goal is to win the war. It's a goal that a soldier can't question. Actually, war is beautiful in the sense that it's probably one of the few things that gives you a binary choice and saying yes. like you have to just aim for the goal and the goal is to kill and to succeed and destroy and, and whatever like you know there's it's amazing that way and then your morality can quite quickly sh quickly shift to this of course it spirals out of control but that's kind of in some sense part of the experience and then as a consequence of this you go and you um you go out into the, the war zone and you have to make all your decisions towards success. And this allows the birth of many fascinating experiences, like, for example, the Germans and the, the English playing football with each other and, and displaying these like just really interesting breaks of the, the kind of contract and the, and the story. But this is, this is really what Nietzsche is trying to dig into, is understanding the nature of that moral conception, what it means to be a decision maker and, and try to empower that. And I think that's a big thing for soldiers to think about because I've spoken to many who get PTSD and stuff like this. And it's often decisions that haunt them when it comes down to it. I'm really glad that you said this. So um, in my experience, I, I did a lot of study at the War College. Um, and a lot of the, the PTSD, as you mentioned, comes from psychic breaks, which really what it, what it means to be say is is basically a disassociation between the values you hold you know abstractly in your head that you've accepted since birth like you know christian morality thou should not kill you know be kind etc and then these good boys from the midwest they go out you know especially in GWAT, which is the global war on terror and obviously they go out and kill people and they have a hard time squaring that back home. Of course, there's uh, instances of TBI and like actual brain damage, and that's different. I'm talking about specifically the cases which have to do with conscience and a conflict of conscience, bad conscience, as uh, Nietzsche would say. Yeah. 
And I think yeah. before I finish here, I think the most interesting thing that I've heard someone say, I had this conversation with this uh, like colonel once, and uh, you know, I said I said something similar to what Marinetti said, basically like war is beautiful, it's the hygiene of the world. And then he's like, you know, all pompously, well, why don't you say that to to the boys that with their guts spilling out on D-Day? And I told him, why don't you ask Ernst Jünger, you know, basically yeah. the ultimate Ubermensch soldiery in a time where combat is impersonal, right? Especially in World War One, which is probably the most ugly war to probably have been waged on the face of this earth just by the, the, the way that it was waged and the, the ridiculous waste of manpower. But somehow Ernst Jünger was able to you know, imbibe Nietzsche in his personal philosophy, even though later he would denounce him in part, um, and basically make the most of it. Whereas the inverse, if you remember, there is two major novels from the First World War, which is Storm of Steel, and on the converse, it's All Quiet on the Western Front, which is a defeatist mm -hmm. book. And I think I read that a lot. And when I argue with my friends who are very devoutly Christian, and obviously I love them very much, and they're my close friends, so I, I, you know, I always say this in a very respectful way. Um, but for instance, they always say, "Well, Christianity," you know, they always try to come up with these half measures. But prima facie, um, the argument is for peace, and so much so that even the early church fathers in Orthodoxy, for instance, um, people, a lot of people are turning to Orthodoxy. But Saint Photius even spoke of the fact that. If you, if a man was in the legion and he was defending his country and he was just, etc., he still had to abstain from the sacrament for a number of years because he was still impure. So that should imply to you that Christianity does not exalt the warrior like the the Hellenic pagans or, or generally speaking, the non-Abrahamic religions did in the past. I mean, could you comment on that and elaborate that further? Well, actually, I pin it back to the first thing you said, because I think this is um, like it sets the stage for, for this really, really well. You were talking about Ernst Jünger. You're talking about Nietzsche. You're talking about the the way Ernst Jünger could describe war as beautiful. I think there's there's very much something in that because um, I, my, my experience working with people who experienced trauma is I've done it with a lot of different people. I've dealt with women who've been raped. I've dealt with soldiers who've kill people i've dealt with like you know soldiers who've shot kids and stuff like this and my approach towards trauma comes from just my psychological background and so i understand like, the the way that the human mind processes emotions and one aspect of this is, this is not a unitary thing there's a lot of different ways you do it but one aspect with dealing with trauma is very very similar to how you deal with an injury in the body so what happens when you get injured in your body i broke my arm recently mm -hmm. so what happens is my arm breaks and then it gets inflamed now, at that point, you can't really do much with it. Obviously, maybe you put the arm back into place. But generally speaking, inflammation comes. You just kind of have to leave the motherfucker alone. You know, it's going to be inflamed. It's going to be warm. It's going to hurt like fucking hell. Believe me, broken bones do. And it's going to swell up and stuff like this. Now, this is actually crucial because this is the part where the, the process is happening. So this is just after the trauma happens. Maybe you, you kill someone you wish you didn't or you watch a friend get like his, his brain splattered all over the wall. It's pretty fucking brutal. And what happens with that experience is you're 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 bewitched, you're fucked, your head is all like jelly jelly, you're inflamed, you're in a bad state. But after a while, that fades. You know, the arm stops swelling, and then what happens is the era of tightness comes, and this is going to last for maybe like six weeks with your arm, with your head. It's usually an awful lot longer, like eighteen months, maybe a bit longer. Um, and you're going to have this kind of contraction phase. Now, what happens here is, and it's so interesting your arm becomes tender, sensitive, and stiff, a combination of things. So like, I can't move my arm fully right now. I, um, it hurts to touch at certain things. It's, it's, as I said, tight and whatnot. And so these are all physiological responses my body is doing to protect the injured area, to allow myself to, to heal properly, and then eventually allow me to, to use it again. And it's the same with your brain. If you go and you, you kill a kid, this is what I noticed with PTSD. You can, you can get this um, trigger concepts, trigger words. So say, for example, if you shot a kid in the chest and I'm walking up and I um, say to you, uh, Mr. Mr. Lance, I'm like, oh, hey, bro, like, oh, man, chest, chest day today, chest day today. That word can trigger a, a stream of memories that can make you remember the kid and that could be like years afterwards and then you can suddenly have a like a bit of a panic experience it's the same way as guys are being like trains after world war one and the train door would shut and it would sound close enough to like a, a shell a shell going off 
and then obviously triggers the experience of having shells rain down on him. So he has a he has a, a psychotic breakdown. He has a panic attack basically. Mm-hmm. And this is common. I've like I've I've taken LSD and have this experience. I actually know what it feels like. I've um know like I've I've had stuff like this happen to me before. I've spoken to loads of people. The way to describe it is the exact same. Mm-hmm. It seems to be something about how our brains deal with intensity or, or, or psychological traumas as we categorize it as. Now, what's interesting is that in order to deal with this, to solve this, there's a lot of different ways. But one of the most consistent ones I've found is to try to get people to re-experience it. And it's actually very intuitive to how your 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 body heals a, a broken arm. When I want to heal my broken arm, eventually the stiffness will die down a little bit. And what I can start to do is rehabilitate it. I can start to try to contract the muscles. It's going to be very stiff. It's going to hurt like fucking hell. And it's going to be grinding the bones against each other. But that's going to lead to healing that's going to lead to the thing becoming fully functional and that's going to actually help me get over the pain and then i can begin to develop um uh, break up the scar tissue and get rid of, rid of the sensitivity and get my mobility back now apologies i'm kind of ranting here for a bit but i've, I've got no, loads please, more to say on this. please please and so with the trauma it's this very same principle when someone uh, when a girl got raped 10 years ago unfortunately you kind of have to sit down with her and get her to integrate the experience you have to sit down with her and get her to sort of talk talk through it because what you'll notice is that people tend to have, as we said, sensitivities about these things. They, they create, create all these mental rationalizations that protect themselves from the brutality of the actual experience because they can't relive the experience because it kind of tortures them and haunts them. And it's almost like when you get someone who's a broken arm and you massage into the actual place where the bone is broken. That's the place that's the most tender. But when you do that after the healing period, that actually leads to the conquest of the pain. The tenderness starts to go away. Blood flow goes back in. And, and everything starts to heal properly. So this is sort of what you're trying to do. And so with this, I would often sit down with people and weirdly use things like writing techniques. I was never much of a therapist. I hate that. So, but I, would, I was always very good at getting people to dig into this part of their mind. So I'd sit down and I'd get a, a soldier to storytell to me, um, shooting a kid in the chest and watching it bleed out and stuff like this. Mm. And I like it's, it's something else because you actually notice that he would tell you the story. When he first comes in and talks to you, he would say, oh, yeah, I am. Um, I, I shot the kid. And he has this story about it. And he has this moral story about what happened. And I feel bad about it. And I'm a terrible person. And it was it was awful what happened and blah, 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 blah. But you'll notice that there's no actual tactile engagement with the experience. And then you sit, you pause and think about this. Think about how this works. Instead of him just explaining some abstraction and some story, he turns around and he says, I was in the room. I was looking at the kid. I saw their eyes. Their eyes were black. The, the guy behind him jumped really, really quickly and I got a bit f- afraid. And I lifted my gun to shoot, but I pulled the trigger too early and I went right through the kid. I heard the kid go, <clears throat> I didn't even make a proper noise and it just slumped onto the floor like a sack of potatoes. I saw the blood just rushing out of it. It was uh, ruby red. I went down and touched someone. I could smell the iron in it. Hmm. I, I had the footprint of the blood in it. My sergeant starts shouting at me. There's more gunshots going off, but I'm sort of, whatever it is. The point being is that this experience is actually very very vivid but he can't confront it it's almost like a dream that he can't he can't experience because it hurts him and so you force him to go through it in more detail and it um, it helps him conquer it it helps him integrate it. it helps him become part of who he is and helps him reframe and re-understand what happened and that process that technique is one technique it doesn't necessarily always work but a, a hell of a lot of time it does as i said I, I would have these people come in they would explain to me the abstract rationalizations and then you'd get them to do this. And they're usually crying halfway through. Mm-hmm. Their voice starts breaking. They start to feel physiological responses. That's so fascinating. Their body is responding to just words coming out of their face. Think about what's happening there. But it's because their mind is going through the experience. Now, contrast this with um, something that I heard from uh, a BAP recently that I thought was just such a brilliant observation. BAP is always talking about the... Uh, the revolution of um, aesthetic morality that you see inside of the ancient Greeks. And Nietzsche is very much talking about aesthetic morality. And this is very abstract stuff. Like, it's like, what the fuck does this even mean? But he talks about the Iliad. And what is so interesting about the Iliad is the Iliad is full of no moral prescriptions. The Iliad is a a description of a war. And it describes poetically the experience of fighting. And it has all these beautiful, lucid detailed descriptions of soldiers dying and Achilles dying and soldiers winning and things going on. It's a narrative and an experience. It's actually very much like what I'm describing here. It's, it's like some genius poet trauma integrates the experience of war for his people. Now, the, the trauma is not a great word because it's negatively con- connotated, but it's, it's like he, he 
uh, recollects that. He doesn't give any moral prescriptions. He doesn't moralize. He doesn't rationalize. Instead, he just represents. And in some sense, through transforming that war into art, he gives his people a treasure that could not have been done beforehand. All their emotions get digested and processed ex in, in an excellent way through this experience. And there's no way you can make decisions about this or, or come up with stories about this because the only way to do this right is to actually create that poetic piece of work that shows people, that brings people into the experience and, and makes their nervous system live through it by listening to this stuff. That's a big, big deal. And this type of attitude, this type of approach towards how are you supposed to process something like war, I think is very, very valuable. Because when people say, well, what could the value of war be? Well, it actually gives us an opportunity to achieve things like this, like the highest forms of art. Because, of course, the highest art is only going to be connected to the highest drama, the highest stakes, the highest danger. And so when you go to something like a war where the stakes are absolutely total, absolutely maximum, that's where you can actually get access to this aesthetic um, a possibility. And this can be incredibly healing for people. Now, as a consequence of this, um, you, or a derivative of this, or related to this, you see Younger, when you read Younger's Storm of Steel, he completely intuitively hacks into that way of thinking. You notice that he doesn't moralize. He's got this very blunt, mechanical way of describing what happened. He's very detail-orientated. He has this beautiful phrase where he says, I was standing there and we were about to raid the, the English. And I saw everybody with their helmets on, the 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 blades glinting in the in the moonlight, and I I knew uh, and I realized that we were invincible, like a legion from ancient Rome, and we we were going maybe we would become crushed, but we would never be conquered. And in this description, he has he shows you this scene where you're seeing this ancient legion reborn in the modern moment. The poet in him rebaptizes the experience and gives it gives it justice and creates something that's just penetrating. Like it completely fills my mind with an image of incredible power and vital vital magnetism. It gets me hyped up. My nervous system gets sparked listening to this, and that's a great victory over war, over death, over everything. All of those soldiers might have died, but there's something that's eternal about them now because of the poet, because of this character that did this. And I think this type of essence, I, I can't really categorize it as something firm, is really what Nietzsche was, was trying to hack into. But fuck Nietzsche, like go even beyond that and understand this whole aesthetic perspective overall, the value you can derive out of this, because this shows you a way that you can redeem these experiences. And if you try to moralize them, you take something from them. You, you, you really like you really you really if you force morality in these things, obviously morality has its place. But if you try to like turn it into this this like lambasting and complaining and whining about the morality of it and all these type of things. You, in, in some sense, you almost sterilize it and get caught up in the rationalizations when that's not the point. It's something much more aesthetic. So yes. I've said a hell of a lot. I'll leave it there and uh, we can go from there. <laughs> no, of course. And, and I'll just add to that. I think it's absolutely the, it, it, the interesting thing is bef so military officers, you know, from the 1700s all the way to the 1900s, um, they were given a course of reading. And part of that reading and part of that uh, polytechnic education, which include engineering, math, etc., also f heavily focused on the liberal arts. And I mean the true liberal arts before it became mm -hmm. woke and communist. <laughs> and uh, you, on the one hand, you'd read Homer, and on the other, you'd read the Bible. No shit. I'm not even lying to you. For instance, Roman von mm -hmm. Ungern Sternberg, he had theolo theology lessons. Now... Uh, the interesting thing about morality, which I think that the Buddhists hit on the head about morality, is, uh, for instance, uh, you know, the Tibetan uh, Buddhists believe that morality is a raft to cross a river. It has a utility, and at the end of it, you know, it, it's about attaining utility. And so that's the major dichotomy between one and the other is the outcome, right? So the Homer Homeric age placed good and evil based on good and bad, whether this is good or for me or bad for me, vice, uh, you know, the thing in itself from Platonism that got translated into Christianity, which is the, th the means is the ends itself. And now I kind of, I guess I wanted you to explain to us, why is it that Nietzsche wasn't such a fan of, uh, I guess, you know, the Stoic understanding of living completely morally, you know, because obviously there's an aesthetic value to things, but I think there's more to that. I think Nietzsche was like the muscular stoic. He was the guy that wanted to live life <laughs> intensely, you know what I mean? To affirm life, to say yes. And, and I kind of wanted you to go into that, if you could explain that, like the difference between the Socratics and Nietzsche himself. Sweet. Well, one thing I'll say with that, um, 
related to that because you, you you know you bring up so much that my mind goes in four different directions one <laughs> thing i'd love to grab onto is um representational art and this is sort of related to morality too and and i guess you could say abstract or or declarative art because it actually very much relates to the theme i've been talking about where nietzsche is a big critic of putting your words ahead of your um, imagination or your body or uh, morality in action like he's big on stuff like this it's like look you can declare all you want about how how good of a person you are but actually acting this stuff out makes a huge difference and understanding the virtues of the people who are men of action is actually much more interesting than letting a load of nerds decide what virtue is. Now, there's also a phrase or a, uh, a frame on this that I've heard before where uh, the Jews were naturally like a people who got conquered. And so they had a tendency to be a little bit nerdy. And they're like, you know, the people of the book, as they've always been known throughout history. And so they have this tendency towards abstract, moralizing approaches towards the world. You know, the, the, the Old Testament is actually not all like that. It's got many heroic, masculine and visionary uh, passages through it. But it's, it's got an awful lot of like you know, word selling, we might say. And what's interesting is this type of art is directly contrasted with this Homeric art of like representation and the idea of like, all right, don't talk to me about what is right, but show me what is right. Mm -hmm. Show me what is, uh, what is, what is powerful. And you'll notice that the Homo, uh, Homeric arts are much more focused on things that naturally attract the drama and attention. Not, humans are drawn towards brave people, towards great acts, towards warriors. These are the things that we naturally have an interest in because this is where, the, as I said, the stakes are highest. And so there's a, a sort of implicit morality in there that people don't tend to notice or don't tend to actually make explicit and declare because it's just that's not the habit of the Greek people back in the day. And so the... Nietzsche would often be pointing to this as something that we should discipline our minds towards. Why don't we go and study life and study these heroes and study great people and study men of action and derive a morality based on them, like to use them as our first principle instead of this idea where we have like we're going to like talk about abstractions and talk about revelations and talk about all these things that are not based in an actual tangible reality that we have here that we can focus on. And this this becomes a very big war and a very big conquest inside the the mind of um of, of Nietzsche. Like he's pushing, trying to push people towards seeing this. But this is a big issue because he's doing it through the medium of words, and the medium of words are naturally word cell orientated. So you've got this like infinite problem loop here, where he's trying to bring people back to something that's more heroic or embodied or virtue oriented. I'd say vital orientated or manly and embodied or something like this but it's very very hard to do that it's very hard to break people out of the word matrix if you so will mm -hmm. and um if you really want a crystal clear example of this like think about what has probably moved more people to christ mel gibson's passion of the christ or a preacher in the bible being a hypocrite trying to slam a bible over your head right. the preacher turns people away from the religion because that's sort of what like pe people become prone to turning into that when they interact with christianity in the church because it, it flatters that part of their their mind Whereas Mel Gibson is a, is like a warrior spirit in a very special way. He's like the super poet warrior. Mm -hmm. And he shows you Jesus going through the struggle. And there's no explaining. There's no telling you you're a bad person. There's no this is right. There's no this is wrong. None of that happens. Instead, you just see the story of a man experiencing violence and overcoming it. And this is enough for people they don't even need to know what it is they just get moved by it very very intuitively like that's a really powerful film to watch and for every correct reason is that in some sense it's almost like the, a triumph over the 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 bible by turning part of the bible into a movie it turns it into something that it almost like was one of its biggest problems if you want to put it this way yes now um I've said a lot there, so maybe you have some thoughts, but uh, yeah, or I could go into your direct question. No, no, I, you know, I, it, it reminds me, like, you know, the Jews have people always reference Christ as far as the cumulus of the Jews in that spirit, and I understand that. But to me, I, you know, I'm a Roman history fan, and one of the most moving things that actually reminded me of maybe the last of the true Jews that that was actually really moving to me was uh, the Siege of Masada. And Josephus kind of writes down this history where the Romans are able to encircle the Zealots, uh, which are basically Israeli separatists at this time, um, and basically they're being starved out. And instead of you know surrendering, they throw themselves off the cliff 
and kill themselves and kill their children and the women too. And it reminds me very much of, uh, for instance, in World War II in Okinawa where American GIs were about to close into the last pocket of resistance. Instead of the women and children surrendering and the men surrendering, they all chose to uh, fall off the cliff and kill themselves. And, and that is the crux of a noble spirit is to live with mm -hmm. honor or with honor die, as Sophocles says. And I think that's the difference with this attitude uh, with mercy or with um, humility or the denial of the will. Uh, because, you know, as Nietzsche says, it's not just about being able to endure great pain. And yes, I agree with you. I remember watching the Passion of the Christ as a child and being very moved to tears with it. But um, is that the example that you want to set? Because, of course, you know, slave morality is very seductive in that way. You know, it allows people to, you know, it, it wants you to pity, right? But pity lessens both yourself and the person you pity, right? And the way I see it is that I, I see through the lens of a warrior, you know, like the Homeric warrior, and I look at Masada, and you look at Okinawa, and you see people like the Alamo, that choose to die instead of surrender as opposed to enduring great pains. And to me, I think that's the, the major dichotomy between nobility and slave morality, master morality and slave morality. I mean, could you delve into and tell the audience, explain what's the difference between uh, Nietzschean <laughs> master morality and slave morality? Yeah, it's, it's um, like there's maybe a couple of technical frames, but the one you're getting to there is almost like an observation of what is what is what is deeply inspiring like if you think about it almost as as i said from this like homer homer um i can't fucking say this word <laughs> homeric homer based homeric <laughs> there you go i keep mixing up with a hero in my head homeric uh way of experiencing the world and and this sort of representation of what's high drama and what's powerful like the most heavy metal approach to life is you willingly dying instead of becoming a slave. Like that's, if you're put into a corner, the Romans consider this a high virtue, by the way. Mm -hmm. If you're put into a corner and you, you have no way out, it's better to die fighting than it is for you to, to buckle down and, and take the, the yoke of the master. There's, some, there's something that happens there that's incredibly profound. That's your ability to sort of say, I will die instead of um, violating my, uh, my, my ability to express myself, if you want to put it this way. This mm -hmm. might, you might call it freedom. You might call it um, you might call it many things, but dignity, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But there's this there's this force inside of you that is willing to destroy yourself rather than to become a slave. Now, what happens in history is this terrible, terrible story in many ways of this constant flux of domination and slavery and brutality and violence. And so people get enslaved all the time and they don't have the courage or for whatever reason, they don't allow themselves to be killed, like the, the, the Mossade or the, the Okinawans or whatever it is. And for this reason, they become enslaved and something happens to them. Because what, what happens when you get enslaved? You have your right to express yourself taken away from you. Oftentimes you'll be castrated. The, you know, we'll say the Romans and the Gauls, you know, because that will hit close to home with me and <laughs> um, coming from the Gaelic race. Mm -hmm. The Romans conquered the Gauls. They castrate all the men. You know, all the men that aren't brave enough to die in battle, they're castrate you. So first of all, now you're a eunuch. That's not fucking good. They've cut your literal balls off. You're a, you're a little girl. The, the Roman um, might actually, like some twisted senator might take you and use you as his fuckboy for all you know. Mm -hmm. That didn't happen too much, but like it could have happened. And they, it would have been, they, if they wanted to do it, they could do it with you because you had no rights, you had no power. Mm. They, um, they would have taken your girls. You would have had all these soldiers and they would have just marched out your Gallic women and they would have taken them as sex slaves. They won't be their wives, they'll be their sex slaves. They'll clean their house and then when the Roman is drunk, he'll come in and he'll fuck your wife. That beautiful girl that you grew up with, that you wanted to have kids with, is now going to be used by a Roman senator and you're going to be the loser. Your parents might be killed, your children might be killed in front of you because they're no use, they can't work. And you might be then sent to the mines to work or something like this. And it's, it's just, it's horrific what happens. Your people get destroyed, their language gets replaced, their identity gets replaced. It's so unbelievably savage and serious. Now, in response to this, because you got enslaved, you have all sorts of trauma that's put inside of you, as we said before. And trauma is very difficult to process, as we said. Remember what I was saying earlier, that the kind of natural reaction is to begin to rationalize, to come up with stories. Now, these rationalizations can sometimes be 
incredibly delusional, depressing, delusional in all sorts of ways. One of them might be that you start to say, oh, I hate myself. I'm a loser. I don't deserve anything. And it's sort of true. You've become enslaved. You didn't have the bravery to resist slavery. So you sort of are. And you can start to have this sort of attitude, like I'm a loser, I'm a failure, I'm weak, I deserve this, whatever. And this becomes your little religion, you know, this becomes your little way of seeing the world, your little culture. And you might even have this idea that uh, why is God punishing me or something like this? What is going on here? This is this despairing energy you might put out. You could also see how people would rationalize and cope. Oh, God's making me do this because he's testing me. Uh, God let the Romans cut my balls off because he's testing me, whatever it is. And I'll get, maybe get my vengeance in these Romans in, in a later life or, or an afterlife or something like this. This is just this this world is just a test or even think about a kid who was born into slavery. They've never experienced freedom. What type of culture and what type of stories are they told among themselves? They're told all these rationalizations and these copes that like one day we'll be free. This is what our story was and all these type of things. The trauma of that experience forces you to distort reality, to become depressed, all sorts of things. And when Nietzsche says something like a slave morality, really he's talking about the slave culture and attitude and how it's very obvious that people who go through slavery are going to develop stories, narratives, rationalizations that are negative in many ways and distorted and twisted. They're heavily touched by trauma. And as a consequence of this, when these stories get turned into a culture and promoted to people as a way of seeing the world, that's actually very, very dangerous. It's literally like going and meeting the, the, the biggest loser in your high school and adopting his thing or meeting a depressed person and adopting his thinking patterns, thinking that it won't lead to you getting depressed. If you meet a depressed person and he says, like, nothing ever works out. I'm a failure. We can't achieve anything in this life. You may as well give up. And you decide, right, I'm going to believe that. Pretty, You'll find yourself in a year that you'll be depressed and on SSRIs as well, because this type of story, this narrative, this rationalization is infectious in this way. And you'll notice then that winners or great people tend to have a, a different set of stories that they tell themselves. The Romans understand themselves as we can conquer anything. We, we will be the conquerors or we will be the dead. And that level of like intensity, willingness to die, that level of bravery leads to some type of expansive power. And any tribe who has it in some sense is destined to win on some, on some level. So there's an awful lot of like vitality in that. That's a whole different way of seeing the world. Now, these two forces can become very at odds when you think about it, because if a like there's a lot, there's been a lot of people who've been through slavery in the world. I'm from Ireland. And so we're deeply infected with these narratives, this culture of like, oh, these English people oppressed us. We can't achieve anything. There's phrases that we'll say in in the Midlands in Ireland, such as uh, it's the graveyard of ambitions. Because we have this very pessimistic attitude. You Americans, like you probably won't understand this because when you when we meet, meet you Americans, you have a pure master morality. I meet Americans and they're like, it's called a can-do attitude. It's like, yeah, bro, we can like, uh, we can we can get a trampoline and we can make it so powerful, we'll just launch ourselves to fucking Mars, man. Let's fucking do it, bro. Yeah, man, let's go. Let's, be, let's make Hollywood. Let's make all these movies, man. Let's go conquer the world. We're Americans. And it's like, in Ireland, we, if someone comes to me and says, oh, I want to go and get a better job than I have, it's like, ah, don't get over yourself, man. Just You can't do stuff like that. Uh, stop being arrogant. You know, you look at you thinking your class and all this. There's this crab in the bucket desire to pull you down. And that's the negativity that's built into that trauma from slavery can install inside of you. And it develops a culture that's extremely negative as a consequence. You know, it's, and so when it's interesting uh, that you say that because, uh, you know, I'm American. I, I don't like being a plastic patty as y'all say it you know but my namesake actually <laughs> is irish right and so they came over during the american civil war and actually my ancestor uh fought you know basically this is how he did it crafty irishman that he was basically a bunch of rich liberals in the in new england uh there's a schema that you could pay someone a poor dude to stand in for you in the draft right and so he no. he he did that like three times and ran out on the regiment until finally of course he got caught and then he was forced to fight a fourth time after getting paid of course and uh, it's really interesting to me because like you're absolutely right in ireland i i've lived in ireland for a year and a half before in dublin and I remember, like, there's just a different attitude. And when you meet Irish abroad or part of the diaspora or people that are descended from them, it's like, for instance, in Chile, there's this great general, Bernardo uh, O'Malley or something like that. And uh, he was a great general. <laughs> it's very interesting that the Irish had, like, it, there were two strains of Irishmen, right? There was one strain that kind of... I, for whatever reason, they found the master within themselves and reinvented themselves and struck out, and some that stayed. And, you know, 
I, I consider you one of those mass morality kind of guys and trying to like, you know, rally the troops. And I guess the, the question is because ideas obviously are powerful. And I think that's something maybe Nietzsche a little bit dunks on a little bit too much because he's trying to get rid of the people that read too many books, too many nerds. But you're absolutely right. Like uh, internal narratives such as, you know, uh, you know, when I go to sleep, I only watch TV that, you know, enhances me. I've I've literally watched while on Shrooms, Troy, like on repeat until yes. <laughs> you, until you literally brainwash yourself. I do not allow anything into my brain that, you know, unconsciously grounds itself. I only think strong thoughts. And I wanted your perspective on what what could we teach, you know, soldiers? What could we teach, you know, your average man to expand his power? What kind of narrative should you tell um, instead of things like, uh, you know, uh, that you're usually supposed to be told that I'm moral, I'm this, I'm that. What can we say instead? Yeah. And, you know, I think there's a really important point that an awful lot of people miss out on, because, again, an awful lot of people are abstract, declarative totalitarians, you know? So when Nietzsche comes and says there's master moralities and slave moralities, people are like, okay, sweet. So all of Christianity is a master morality and all of the Jews are a mass, uh, or sorry, slave morality. I meant to say Christianity, slave morality, the Roman pagans are all master moralities. The, you know, the, the Irish are a slave morality and all these types of things. But like, the truth is, is that you can transform, like you can overcome yourself. The, it's, it's about trauma, as I said. Like the, the thing that makes a slave a slave is trauma and a lack of will and spirit to be able to overcome that trauma. Now, if you have the vitality inside yourself, which, which lots of people have all the time, you can transform that. Nietzsche himself said the Jews are a psychologically vital people. He had an awful lot of compliments for them. He just thought, he, you know, he found them annoying that they're all these fucking <laughs> book nerds. Yeah. But nonetheless, he saw that they have virtues. And in fact, the slaves have many virtues in some sense because of their trauma. Some of their best virtues get developed, like patience, like craftiness, like long-term thinking, like long-term will. That They're actually really powerful. That's almost like endurance, which sometimes the masters can lack. The masters can be naive. If I was to describe the Americans and um, maybe a downside of them being like the, the, the supermen who've conquered the world, the world hegemon, is that they are a little bit naive and out of touch. They don't realize, you know, you, you talk to people nowadays in America and they're like, yeah, man, like everybody can come here. Everybody can be American. Everybody can be like us. It's like, bros, you are very special. You have a, an incredibly dynamic people. If you bring a load of like us Irish there, you're bringing in a load of people who are deeply negative, who have all these types of issues. And we're not, I don't know, will we integrate that well? You know, it, it will take a while to do it. You bring in people from other parts of the world who genuinely despise you. Like this is, I, I don't know how all this stuff is going to click. I, I, maybe it will. Maybe I could be wrong. But the, the Americans just have this sort of simple, happy-go-lucky attitude and all this. And Nietzsche often said the masters tend to be naive. They tend to be out of touch in this way. Mm. And so um, the point being is that we have this experience with trauma and we can process it. We have this experience with life and we can process it and develop a narrative, a way of looking at life, a philosophy, if you want to put it this way. And it, it, it's not it's not necessarily permanent. Like you, me as an Irishman, when I was reading Nietzsche, he was almost like a psychotherapist teaching me how to overcome pettiness and resentment. Mm -hmm. And now I can be an Irishman and acknowledge all the great things about myself and great things about our history. And I can look and see many of the brave things. Like, for example, the revolution was an act of actually great bravery where these guys put them, their, their fucking balls on the line in order to um, overthrow, overthrow the English. And it's like, you know, whatever way you look at it, man, that took stones. That was unbelievably um, hardcore to do that stuff. Now, did we, did, did the whole Irish race overcome their trauma and then transform that into an ascendant project? No. In, in fact, we've kind of like drifted into this sort of European leftism and all these type of things. And that's another big issue we need to face. Mm -hmm. Israel is another great example of this. Like the Israelis had a great deal of will to power. They're like, this, this, the Jews are the slave people par excellence of history. Mm -hmm. And through Israel, they've achieved something that's incredibly brave, incredibly assertive and like, you know, conquering territory. Like, how does that stuff happen? And so these are great examples of this. Um, and I've kind of half forgotten your question, but the point that we really wanted to stress is that these things are modulative. And you can, oh yeah, I remember your question now. I remember your question now. You can, you can transform. You always have that power. And Nietzsche is actually looking for you to understand that, that within man, there is this vital force that he can leverage. And through this, it's almost like when you have a lot of energy, it's like you can creatively do anything. And so if you're traumatized, imagine this, if you're full of like healing power and I break your arm, you're not going to, you're going to be able to heal that arm and come back to full strength. 
and it's the same with like psychological vitality. If you if you get traumatized by life and become a slave or, or get enslaved, you know, a lot of us wake up nowadays and we're in debt based finance to usurious masters who we don't know who they are and stuff like this. Mm -hmm. And this type of problem that we have leads to an experience of slavery. We go, we live in these cities. All our girlfriend ends up on OnlyFans. <laughs> Guys are porn, porn addicts and stuff like this. And we, we wake up traumatized to this and we realize that we're slaves. Oh, fuck. We are cooked slave moralists to we're, we're cook little slave people to these financial masters or whatever you want to call it like i'm not necessarily saying it's that but this meme comes up inside people's heads and it's like well do you have the creative strength to rebaptize your situation and put yourself in a positive place and then this really starts to lead into what nietzsche meant by master morality is that it's it's like how would you act if you had the power to express your 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 creative instincts your your soul how would you act like what would you have to be in order for you to get to that place where you can win well how does a champion think you know yeah. and usually they're very competitive they're very severe with themselves and with others they're very very happy-go-lucky and positive actually they're very um big thinking and visionary these are usually these traits that they have again i use the americans because think about how the americans operate in the world the americans think the biggest dreams that you can imagine we're gonna fucking explore space and be the first motherfuckers on the moon fuck you meanwhile in ireland we're like oh those english people there's no cans of beans on the store the americans are like we're we're gonna be the world fucking hegemon and everyone's gonna use the u.s dollar and if you don't we're gonna bring democracy to you these guys <laughs> this yeah this energy is really assertive and really powerful because it's bombastic it's it's creative it's like we're going to shape the world we're going to set the agenda there's balls there it's really really compelling and and, and there's an awful lot of virtue in this there's a competitive attitude there's all these types of things and um, and so nietzsche is really trying to push you more towards that style of thinking that very elegant simple winner's thinking and you see this in 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 rome there's not this hesitation and this this shackling with nerd morality about am i a good person and what should i do and all these type of things instead the romans are like i have this vision for the world where we turn it all into the roman empire and we're going to go and we're going to organize in order to achieve this and of course it doesn't necessarily have to be a militaristic thing the greeks are also a good example first of all they were militaristic but they also had this sort of like creative vision you know they had like we're going to be the people who penetrate into the nature of the universe and articulate it as science and reason and philosophy we're going to penetrate into the the perfection of plato's forms and we're going to represent it as high statues and beauty beauty and things like this and there's this um this crazy creative bombastic energy inside the the greek people that led to them approaching anything they did with competitive excellence that led to the success the renaissance in italy is the same thing you know they're full of vitality they the italians didn't wage any wars you know there's a couple but it was not like some war project it wasn't the roman empire instead it was this cultural renaissance these people blistered and blew open the the project of modernity these people lifted these grand beautiful the, the most most beautiful art we've ever seen in the world in some sense and um, all because they had that in, incredible severity inside of themselves that indomitable will to express their souls and that's very much an alignment what Nietzsche talks about with a master and this is what a slave loses exactly what as I was saying earlier when the master conquers you you don't get to make your art anymore you don't get to make your statues you don't get to use your language you don't get to come inside girls you don't get to make families you don't get to do the things you want to do you get cuckolded. You get the, the, the master takes your vital forces and uses them for himself and you become part of his, his plan and that's the one of the most fundamental differences, that ability to express and manifest that creative will. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. Like, um, I've noticed something, too, is that, you know, the, the slave mindset or the, the untermensch mindset is always defined by being against something. So I guess in your, your case, it's the Irish against the British. Um, for, for others, it's, you know, this against the, the overman or whatever. And I think that's the, the defining feature that I try and tell people. They're so focused on, you know, uh, being against this or that conspiracy of banks or whatever, but they're never focused on mm. what's the vision that they want to put forward. You know, just like Nietzsche mm. said, if I disagree with something, I simply look away. And they look towards the things, you should look towards the things that you're trying to build, right? And I think you're absolutely mm. correct about that. And, you know, um, on top of that, Nietzsche is one of those philosophers of the body as well. I'm sure that you said that. But when I was in the military, you know, I've been out for a little bit. Um, but I, I, you would be remarkable that, like, you know, commercials have a whole bunch of buff dudes who, you know, absolutely ripped. You think they're absolutely jacked. But you get in there and you realize the most, most people are obese. 
they're porn addicts. Like, I'm not even joking with you. People, like, are, you know, um, cooming three times a day, you know, on their phones oh, in, in the field. You know, like, you know, in the Marine Corps, you're out in the field, you're, like, doing exercises. They're, like, in their sleeping bags jerking off. And, you know, and then they, you know, obviously there's just all these policies which kind of basically uh, emasculate the virile warrior spirit and basically they wonder why you know the united states military isn't as effective as it used to be and so i kind of wanted you to just explain to us how is it that a healthy body you know gives rise to healthy thoughts so this is it man this is where um something that the i think the americans really need to take serious because i said that um like the irish are slaves you know we, we historically were slaves and we have a culture that is filled with slave narratives that are like low in ambition and all these type of things. And again, to, to highlight that thing that you said, like think about the difference between the Irish and the English, the focus, the vision, the Irish's vision is fundamentally reactive. Our whole goal is that we want to take our land back from the English. The English are the center of our attention. Now think about the English's vision. The English's vision is I want the whole world to be English. You know, they have this massive conception of what they're trying to achieve. They're this huge super project that they're, they're going on. The Irish are just this petty little like guys biting on their heels in that project, this type of thing. So there's this massive difference in vision. But of course, the Irish, because they're slaves, doesn't necessarily mean that they can't transform themselves and overcome that trauma and do something about it. These things are not as fixed as people might think. Um, but they are very hard to break out of just because they're not fixed doesn't mean that people overcome them. Otherwise, they, they probably wouldn't exist that way. Now, they're also not fixed in the opposite direction. Like a master can become a slave. The Jews were masters once, and then they got conquered by a lot of people. And um, the Irish were masters. Like the Irish showed up on this island and conquered who was there. This this happens. And I look over at America, and I'm like, oh man, they've they've definitively allowed so many thought forms of slave thinking to be saturated into their moral worldview that they have essentially self owned themselves. They've allowed a culture of negativity of patheticness like there's so many versions of this that go beyond maybe the politics of it but like the simple version of a, a loser men mentality or a victim mentality or slave mentality in a fat person like a fat person looks maybe at a beautiful person and they react to the, the person the, the beautiful person's beauty and they feel bad about themselves they might begin to envy the beautiful person they might become resentful and in reaction to this they might just try to create some type of cope such as it's okay to be fat they'll do this fat shaming thing and of course, then this cushy, soft morality of being permissive towards people's feelings that you see in America so much these days in the West generally permits this style of thinking. The West has a big problem where it permits the delusions of victims and slaves. This is probably one of the defining issues in the West. And I'm asking all Americans to please help us fix this because you're the world hegemons. <laughs> this idea that, all right, because of an abstract morality like mercy or something like this. We must be nice to people who have rationalizations based on the fact that they feel inadequate compared to people who are healthy and victorious and, and great. And as a consequence of this, we come up with these concepts like fat shaming. And then what happens is this seeps into the culture in a, a litany of different ways. You go to the military and for some reason, the military just dr starts to drop its standards because the culture at large is, large is trending in that direction. Now, this is a very big problem because give this 10 years and will the American military be able to resist an invasion by China or Russia? That's where things become scary. That's where things start to become a little bit dodgy because, because now you're starting to weaken this conquering spirit, the healthy parts of the American state, and that's leaving them vulnerable to an outsider who is remaining strong. These same principles come back to the, the very simple questions of being an individual. You know, It's important for you to be healthy like what what does it mean for you to have a good life a lot of people might say it's about some stoicism or abstractions and all this but really often what you're looking for is great health uh, the ability to express your creative instincts that would be to have sex with a beautiful woman and come inside of her and make children and then have a progeny that would be um to your ability to manifest your cultural forms and your artistic forms that would be ability for you to express your soul these things are what, what you're looking for to feel and if you allow if you understand that as like as a whole as like a, a vital expression of yourself the body is a part of that you get very close to nietzsche's idea of like great health and what is essentially good like that's the state you're trying to reach towards you're trying to get towards that experience put away all abstractions 
and just think about that experience of where you can express this. You would require an awful lot of things in order to do that. You'd need freedom. You'd need power. You would need um, bravery. You would need you need to be full of vitality. You need health. You'd need all these types of things in order to be in that creative state. But that's what the state of happiness in some sense is or joy or whatever it is, free expression is. Now, again, think about this. Like you can be in that state, but if a fat person comes along who doesn't have discipline, so they can't get themselves healthy. For this reason, they're fat. For this reason, they're shackled with shame. They can't get the girl because they're too tubby. And now they've got a, an inability to express their instincts. Now they're an incel. And then they have all these rationalizations that build up as a consequence of this and all these distortions. If you take on board their self-conceptions and distortions, what the fuck are you doing? That's absolutely crazy. Right. This is going to start to say to you, stop being disciplined. Start to be okay with the fact that you're inadequate, whatever it is. And this is going to start to worm in, like this is what the slave morality does. The, the rationalizations worm in to your story about yourself and get you to stop doing the things that make you powerful, which will actually end up restricting your ability to express your power because everything will start falling apart little by little mm -hmm. until it's too late. And then you will turn into the fat fuck and then you're the fat person and then you're screwed. And you know, boom, there you go. You've been, you've been slave cooked. It's really interesting. You bring this up like about, um, I guess the archaic term for this is pity, but you know, this is enabling, uh, what's it called? Uh, inclusive speech or whatever BS they, they try to say it, but it, the military standard for grooming, for instance, uh, shaving your face, getting a haircut, uh, making sure your na nails are correct. You know what I mean? Your, your clothes are trimmed mm -hmm. and everything. Um, a lot of people in the military, I remember talking to them, they kind of don't understand why is it that there are standards. Of course, it's about hygiene. Of course, it's about the practical, you know, uh, material consequences of keeping up that standard. But the most important thing, which also is another aspect of physical fitness, is building expectations of standards, adhering to them, mm -hmm. and toughening your mind, you know? And I, I remember mm -hmm. seeing, you know, just now, uh, the Navy and... Uh, basically a, a lot of the branches of the military are now allowing people not to shave. And this is a, a massive uh, mistake because, you know, <laughs> I, I understand people say, oh, I have a med medical condition. I have ingrown hairs. Some people genetically have like hairs that cause bumps and whatever. But like, they're like, it's painful. It's like, well, you're in the profession of pain, you know, and <laughs> embracing pain every day is part of the deal. And it's what makes you stronger. And uh, that's something people don't get, that the majority of physical fitness in the military is really geared towards toughening your mind. And, you know, um, that's something I, I really noticed about people, especially when you talk to girls. And girls get really jealous, for instance, if there's a picture of a beautiful trim chick and they say, oh, that's, that's uh, uh, not yeah. realistic or whatever. <laughs> and it's like, you know, it, it's, when I see someone that's better than me, you know, there's a, a lesser person in me that is so jealous and consumed with anger because I can't be that. But I push that down and I look at that person for the virtues that they have. And and I see this in this way, agonistically, like I see that he's my competition. You know what? I'm going to best him. I'm going to be better than him. And I think that is the the crux of the argument and the difference is that some people see, you know, excellence and they crumble. Or some people see excellence and they're spurred to action, and the difference mm -hmm. and the difference and the fork in the road is up to you, which one you take. Whether you take the path of competition or you take the path of subjugation and tearing down the the high, and you know, uh, we're back. Hey, we lost Beautiful. you. So as I was saying. Yes, yes, we lost you. Now I'm back. I've returned. <laughs> um, as I was saying, Nietzsche greatly admires your ability to turn uh, disadvantage into an advantage. He considers it a, a apex strength, an a apex vitality. And you sort of have to always be saying to yourself, how do I cultivate the type of thinking that can allow me to do this? And this turns into a very assertive masculine approach towards life where you become obsessed about you know, not just strength in this, because people often parody Nietzsche and say that he's some like bodybuilder or something like this. And of course, being healthy and having a strong body is a part of it. But it goes so much further beyond that. He's, he's actually a genuine genius creative thinker. And he sees psychological creativity as one of the most valuable things. So if you find yourself in a position of failure, like we, maybe we could say we, we are all slaves to whatever the system is. He's sort of saying to you, to you that's going to be an experience of suffering. And it's going to be very easy for us to develop this slave culture where we start to scapegoat 
whatever abstraction we have in our head or whatever it is. And we start to come up with all these excuses. And instead of turning around and saying, well, what would actually take us out of this slave culture? Well, it's about getting organized. It's about getting educated. It's about setting up standards of excellence. It's about asserting those relentlessly upon ourselves. It is about asserting those in the culture that we create on our children, all these type of things. And through those very, very hard paths, you would probably see yourself ascend to the rank of the leaders of the world in time, if you're severe enough, if you have that winner's attitude and that organizational capacity. That's so difficult that most people just don't achieve this. And he's describing that. Not as, that's not a story about a bodybuilder. That's a story about you having vitality that you can take a punch in the face and say, all right, I'm fucked. I'm in a bad situation right now. I'm a bit of a slave, but I'm going to turn this around and, and use it in some way. And I'm going to see how I can take advantage of this situation and win. And he's big on this. Amor Fati is what he always says. Affirm your destiny, affirm your reality and learn how to engage with it and push it towards that experience of great health, great expression and great release of power, great release of creative will. These things is really the, the, the high goals that he believes in very much so. Well, on that note, I feel like we can't top that. So let's uh, back out of this war room where we're on top. But hey, thank you so much, Uberborio. Thanks for coming on the show. <laughs> Me and Sergeant Barnes are absolutely enjoying this. Thank you so much, sir. I appreciate you. Not at all, my man. Thank you very much for the uh, call. And it's um, very unique to talk about these topics from this frame because my audience would be somewhat different. Um, I'm not different, I guess, because I actually do get a couple of soldiers and veterans in there, like a gentleman like yourself. But when you're sitting down and you're thinking about this from the context of war and talking to people, uh, soldiers, talking to warriors, talking about that experience specifically, it really does make you blend these and make you think about them different. So it's very interesting to just run through that area of thinking. So thank you very much for that opportunity. Well, thank you so much. We'll hope to see you again. Stay juicy, man. <laughs>